The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. I'd like to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Be sure to go to my host page. You can find links to my website and my social media. You can find an index of Good Grief shows and easily find interviews on specific topics. I also want to encourage you to follow the link on my host page to find Anna Elizabeth, Good Grief's newest sponsor, who was a guest on the show in February. So that's a that's a wonderful um, relationship being developed. And be sure to listen to that show. I'm thrilled and honored to have her support the work. And the link will take you to her five facets approach to grief and healing. And you can also buy her book, Digging for the Light, on that website. I want to say a word, too, about a very inspiring time I just had at the Association for Death Education and Counseling Conference in San Antonio, Texas. I especially enjoyed a wonderful audience that came to my paper. I presented a paper on death in the LGBT community. And if you'd like a copy of the paper, feel free to email me. Just just go to the link on my host page to find a way to, there's a direct link to email there. And just to request a copy uh, in the email. Today I'm joined by Kelly Scott. Kelly, who is an RN, BSN, and CHPN, has cared for dying people throughout a 29-year nursing career. Her clinical experience includes inpatient oncology, bone marrow transplant, chronic ventilator patients, home hospice case management, and palliative consulting. Ms. Scott is the executive director of Clare House, a social model hospice, providing a loving home and care for dying people in need. She co-founded Clare House and has overseen all aspects of startup and development. Nationally, she provides consulting to aspiring social model hospices. She's a member of Cigna Theta Tau, Association of Fundraising Professionals, and maintains specialty certification in the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Association. 
In 2008, her work with Clare House was recognized by the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Association with the Innovation in End-of-Life Nursing Care Award. She's also a frequent speaker in end-of-life care and education and nonprofit startup and development. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you today. I'm thrilled to have you. And I wanted to start off by saying that if if I get to the end of my life and I can't be in my own home, I can only hope to be in a place as beautiful as Clare House. You know, having spent some time on your website, it's it's just such a um, a warm looking uh, physical facility, and that really stands out on the on the website. It, we believe it truly is the next best thing to home. It is a warm and wonderfully welcoming place to spend time, and um, people find it to be not at all what they've expected. Hmm. How did you originally conceive of it? Because it's kind of beyond, uh, you know, there are some, uh, there's certainly hospice here, um, hospice and and palliative care wings of hospitals, etc. But it it's I haven't experienced that many uh, brand new facilities like that built, you know, with this model in mind. How did you originally um, begin to imagine that that could happen? Well, it, you're right, Cheryl. It really is a unique model, and. Um, there is a lot that has gone into this vision of care. For me, it started um, many, many years ago in my home hospice practice. You know, I, w- I was a home hospice nurse, and I, I was taking care of a caseload of 10 or 12 people in the home environment at a time, and, and I really just felt like that's what everybody could do was to take care of a loved one at home. But I took a secondary position as a palliative nurse consultant at um, our, a local hospital, and I was caring for people in the hospital environment who were in an end-of-life situation and were needing to leave the hospital because the reality of our healthcare system is that just because you're dying, you're not really eligible for inpatient hospital care. That's not a reimbursable need anymore. Mm-hmm. And so when people choose comfort care rather than curative care, um, another option has to be explored for where their their care needs are going to be met, and the acute care environment is not really the place for that. So families were needing to take their loved ones home, and it, it began to become apparent to me that there are a lot of people that just can't do that. For a variety of reasons, they don't have the resources to take care of somebody at home, whether they physically can't do the care, they cannot be available 24-7, they have to work full-time jobs, um, families may live you know, out of state from each other. Whatever those social issues might be that are driving the challenge, um, you know, families were dealt with needing to get their loved one discharged and having nowhere to go. And they would go and look at the list of long-term care facilities that were available to them and not be happy with that option. The philosophy of long-term care is very different than the philosophy of end-of-life care. And it is it is a very different situation to care for someone in their final days than in an environment that's geared towards health promotion and maintenance. And so most people were not satisfied with that institutional option. And the phrase that I kept hearing that really inspired me was, there ought to be a better choice. We ought mm-hmm. to have another option. No kidding. I, and, you know, the other thing, I, this is just on my mind because of my presentation, there are... Uh, 
and I'm sure this is true overall, maybe a little more in LGBT communities, there are people who really don't have anyone, you know, who have become alienated from family. Right. And then, and then what is their, um, what is their care option? <laughs> you know, there, there really is very little uh, that I know of that feels like home. And that right. embraces and, people and helps them to make the most out of that time. And the vast majority of people surveyed will say that they want to die at home. If they thought at all about their end of life, they want that to occur at home. But the reality of dying at home is that it's difficult. There's, there are physical burdens. There are social challenges. There are economic struggles. Mm-hmm. There are lots of things that make dying at home hard. And in a lot of ways, we've kind of romanticized it, and we think that, you know, it, it, you just get this person home, and their loving family is going to be surrounding them, and it's all going to be perfect. And the truth is, it's difficult. It's gritty. Uh, it's very real. Uh, there's a lot of work involved and stress and anxiety, and all that is being done in the midst of very, very intense grief for a lot of people that that somehow impacts their physical coping and and their you know performance of the care that they want to provide. So it can be really, really challenging. I, you know, I, I've been a home hospice nurse for a long time. I still believe that's that's a great choice, and it's certainly what I want. But I've also come to accept that there really has to be another response in this society for quality care for people who are at their end of life and don't have the family that are able to provide that support. Yeah, I know my mom died in September, and I know her, she wanted to die at home in her independent living apartment near me. She didn't really want us to take care of her body. She wanted us to be there for her soul, and that is a very expensive choice. It so happened she was a really good planner, and she could um, get herself 24-hour care for that brief time. But um, in my mind, that's also an issue that people's sense of independence or um, some people want to die at home but not cared for by their family, not because they're not close, but just because that feels too dependent or um, there are issues such as that as well, yes? Yes, and that's a comment that we hear so frequently at Clare House. Families tell us that one of the biggest gifts we give them is the opportunity to simply be family again, that they can simply be a daughter or a husband or a mother or father. They don't have to be the caregiver, the keeper of the medications, the person doing all of the personal intimate care. And that's a real gift to resume that role of family member and be able to focus on those spiritual and social aspects of end of life rather than being exhausted by the physical care. And that reminds me of my my wife's period of dying. If we had not had a very, very active community, um, I wouldn't have really been able to be with her. I would have been working too hard. Right. So there's that aspect too. How do you how do you integrate family and other report, important relationships of the person in your facility? Uh, is it kind of an open door? Are there hours? How does that work? No, it's it's very much an open door. Um, family can actually live in if they if they want to do that. There is a full sized bed in every 
guest room that is for a family member if they're keeping vigil or, uh, you know, sometimes this may be a couple that have been married for 60 years and they've hardly ever spent a night apart. Mm-hmm. And the guest in our bed that is the, the dying person is being attended to by all of our staff, but the family member, whether it's a spouse or a child or whoever, are welcome to participate in that care as much as they want to. We don't want to take anything away from them that's meaningful to them, but we want to relieve the burdens that we can so that they can more fully participate in in other parts of the experience. And so they can stay in the bedroom. They can They can sleep in that room. There's a family shower. There's a kitchenette for families to use. So they can basically live here in the house with their loved one that's amazing uh, the other thing I was wondering about uh, um, you know you have I don't know how many families at a time how many people uh, at the end of their lives you accommodate at a time but we ha- we have 10 bedrooms 10 bedrooms so there are 10 different uh, worldviews in 10 rooms at a very intense time. How do you find the interrelationships between, I, I imagine, mostly the families with each other? Um, right. How, how do the interactions go? Uh, you know, you know in, the, in, the group, in, the, uh, in the more open parts of the building, I guess. It's amazing with the number of people that move through this house on a daily basis. It's amazing how peaceful it remains on a regular basis. You know, families spend the majority of the time in the bedrooms with their loved ones, but they spend time in the living areas. They're in the dining room sharing meals together. They're walking in the gardens or uh, on the labyrinth or at the chapel, wherever they may hang out anywhere on our campus. They're interacting with other people that are, to some extent, going through the same things that they are, very similar. And I think that's one of the kind of hidden benefits of a social model hospice is that this opportunity to walk through this experience within the community. I never thought of it this way when I was doing home hospice nursing. And since I've been involved with Clarehouse, I've learned to look at that home experience a little bit differently because you can get very isolated. Mm. Yes, people may come over and visit and bring food and caregivers may come in and out to help you and friends stop by. But in the wee hours of the morning when you're exhausted but you're terrified and you're grieving and you're so sad and you don't know what's going to happen next and you're alone, you know, that's a really, really a strong reality of home hospice death is that a lot of times the caregiver feels isolated. In a social model like Clearhouse, you are dying in community, and all you have to do is open that door to encounter somebody that's going through a similar experience or to talk with staff members or volunteers who have literally been on this journey with people hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Well, you know, I'm, I that that really sparked something for me because uh, I remember how much I clung to the couple of people I knew uh, who were part of our large support community, but who had been through it themselves. Uh, they they had a special place for me as as kind of support and advisors, and so in a way, you're connecting people with other people who are also going through it. There's a sense of being understood, I would imagine. Absolutely. 
and and kind of just supported by commonality, like a support group functions. Right. And for somebody that has never cared for a loved one who is dying, or even, you know, you've gone through it before, but you're going through it again, there is so much that you don't know. You don't even know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't know what questions to ask a lot of times. Um, to go back to the beginning of our conversation about, you know, how this whole idea started, you know, with people having this need in a hospital environment, most people, when they're faced with a life-threatening illness of a loved one, they have no idea what their resources are, and most people will assume, number one, that a dying person can stay in the hospital, and that's covered by Medicare and insurance, which is not generally true, or they think that if my loved one has to go into some kind of a facility, that somebody's going to pay for that, Medicare or private insurance, and that's not true. Mm. When you're pursuing comfort care only, there's not really reimbursed 24-7 care, and that's a shock to most people. So they're dealing with this huge financial challenge at the same time that they're dealing with coming to grips with the idea of losing someone, and they're scrambling to find out what their resources are. So, you know, hospice is a fabulous service, and it's something that has really improved the quality of dying in our country, but it is a specialized team of interdisciplinary folks who come in and out of your home on an intermittent basis. They don't come and stay. They're not there 24-7. The hospice is based on this premise, Medicare hospice, is based on this premise that there is a caregiver in the home 24-7 that is going to be responsible. And that's a shock to a lot of people because they think, oh, I'm going to sign up with my Medicare hospice and all my worries will be over. Somebody will be here to help me. Absolutely. The nurse is there two hours a day, three or five times a week, and the aide comes maybe every day for about an hour. But what do you do for the other 23 hours of the day? Yeah, I I recently um, uh, gave a continuing education course. Uh, I I run a program out here, which people can access, by the way, uh, online, and um, we were i was reading a lot therefore about caregiving the billions and billions and billions of dollars that caregivers uh represent in terms of the time and attention and care they give so uh under uh, reported right and such an important factor in our culture i want to talk more about the economics of all this but it's time for our first break so uh let's let's talk about that when we come back um, listeners out there, take these few minutes to go to my host page, connect, it, connect with me, email me. Uh, if you join my mailing list, I'll send you occasional newsletters and information about topics relevant to grief and to the Good Grief Show. And I'll let you know when my gr- guests are doing great things, too. To find out more about Kelly Scott and Claire House, go to www.clarehouse.org. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kelly Scott, an expert and consultant on establishing hospice homes and the co-founder of Clare House, an end-of-life home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, economics uh, before we went to the break and how shocked people are to discover that uh, there really is no... um, 24-hour care involved with hospice. It's really more, I would almost call it a consulting group that comes in and consults with you about things, but not very much direct care. Uh, right. It, beyond it's a drugs service. and stuff. Yeah, it's an interdisciplinary support service, and you have um, you know, some wonderful resources in that. They also provide medical equipment. They provide medications. Um, but as far as if, if somebody's thinking that hospice means they're going to send the caregiver over around the clock, they're going to be disappointed. And so um, that means as well that those kind of services, when when you bill, because I'm assuming you bill for the hospice portion of what you do, um, is that right? That is not correct. <laughs> That's not correct. That well, not I'd like correct. to know how you how you do this. <laughs> you know, because it's such a complete care that you're offering. I, I, I want to know how it works a little more. Well, and okay, so let's start with the distinction between what we provide and what Medicare Hospice provides. Medicare Hospice provides that package of services: a nurse, a, a social worker, a home health aide, a chaplain medical equipment, medications, all that is provided under Medicare reimbursement at a per diem rate or private insurance or hospices also provide courtesy care for people that don't have a payer source. But what hospice doesn't provide is the 24-7 care and the home. So what Clarehouse and other social model hospices provide is we fill the gap 
that hospice doesn't provide. We are not duplicating any hospice services. So we are not providing the skilled nurse, the home health aide, the chaplain, the equipment, the medications. We don't provide any of that because someone else is already being paid to do that. What we do is fill the gap. So we provide the home and the 24-7 care. And we provide that free of charge. There is absolutely no cost to our guests or their family members for the care that we provide here. Everyone that lives here has to be enrolled in a local medical hospice program, and that medical hospice provides their package of services under Medicare or private insurance, and then we provide the home and the 24-hour care that we offer as a free gift. Well, that you, you I'm sure know how amazing that is, and uh, I'm sure you have incredible numbers of people beyond the 10 uh, that you can actually accommodate. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah. You mean people waiting to, to people come and stay here? Wanting that, yeah, wanting that yeah. kind of care that um, you just can't accommodate because of um, space. That's right. And, you know, we say that we take care of 10 people at a time, but that's not really true either because we also care for their family members, their friends, the people they work with, you know, anybody that cares about this person that's that's dying in our bedroom here at Clare House, we're also providing love and support for their extended family and friends. And so our reach is much wider than just the 10 bedrooms that we have here. And honestly, our turnover is is pretty high. The length of stay for someone at Clare House is less than a week. And so we are taking care of many people in a month's time, usually somewhere between 25 and 35 people a month that we take care of in this home. So it is truly final day's care. We are trying to relieve that caregiver crisis that happens in the last days and weeks of life. In fact, our criteria for admission here is a life expectancy of about a month or less. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we realize nobody has a crystal ball and we can never know that for sure. But sure. generally speaking, you know, it's about a month or less. But it's all offered as a gift from our community for our community. We're supported entirely by donation. And we have to raise every dollar that we spend in care. And we have done that consistently for nearly 12 years now out of the generosity of the people who value what we give. Given that I've worked a lot in nonprofit environments, uh, you know, that's, that's an astonishing thing that you're telling me. Um, can, you, can you give me a little sense of how you do that? Uh, you know, who contributes, how you raise, because that, that's, uh, I've looked at what the house looks like and, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's an expensive thing, not just to build the house in the first place and then to staff it and uh, support meals and support everything you've got going on there. Uh, that's quite an accomplishment. Can you talk a little more about that part of it? Yes, and you can look on our website and, and look at pictures of our home and take a virtual tour. And yes, it is beautiful. It's like a resort. It, I mean, people say it, you know, it feels, it's very rustic. Um, it feels like a mountain lodge and all of those things are very true, but, but that's not how we started. We didn't just open and build this great big house. We started in a very modest, humble home that was a rented three bedroom apartment. We envisioned this solution to the crisis that we wanted to offer and our mantra in those startup days 
her mantra was, it's just a home. It's just a home. It's just a home like any one of us would live in where we can take somebody in and literally love them till their death. And we didn't need a facility. We didn't need an institution. We certainly didn't need or want a clinical environment. We just wanted to provide a loving home. So that's how we started. We rented a three-bedroom apartment. And, you know, this was a startup. It was a brand-new idea. We had no real... um, model to base it on, we were making it up as we went along. And we had this vision and this passion for providing this care. And we raised, basically from our family and friends, we raised enough money to cover what we thought our expenses would be for six months. So we signed a six-month lease on this little three-bedroom apartment and we opened our doors. It was all furnished by donation. Uh, you know, we had volunteers come over and decorate. It was not handicap accessible. It certainly wasn't built for our needs like, like our current home is. But it was a loving home. And from the day that we accepted our first guest into that home, it became sacred space. We were able to provide the loving care that we wanted. Families completely trusted us with the care of their loved one and embraced the support that we had to offer. Um, It took us about two weeks to get that first referral, but by, let's see, we opened in October of 2003, and by March of 2004, we had a waiting list, and we've had a waiting list ever since then. At the end of that six-month trial period, we still had that cash reserve in the bank that we had pre-raised because people had given us money as we went along to pay our way, and a lot of that a lot of those donations came from family and friends of people who died under our care. Um, mm-hmm. They wanted to pay it forward and make it possible for the next family. And so, you know, probably even to this day, about a quarter of our income is via donations from family and friends of people who have lived and died at Clare House. Over the years, we have built relationships far and wide within northeastern Oklahoma, and we have many, many individual donors who love what we do. They've known someone that's been here. They've had a loved one here. They've heard about us. They volunteer. um, They bring us food, and they give us money to make this care possible. So individual donors are a a big part of our our base of support. Um, Foundations are about 25 to 30% of our base of support. We write grants and receive grants from local foundations, and we have one annual fundraising event a year. Uh, It's a big dinner celebration of life, and we get together and um, eat, drink, and be merry, and we raise um, about a quarter of a million dollars at that event. So we piece all this together. We have businesses and, and local corporations that help us out, faith communities that give to us on a regular basis. We put all that together. We try to keep as broad a base of support as we can. Um, but our annual budget's about a million dollars a year now, and uh, we're able to piece that together in all these ways year in and year out. You know, I, f- I find that very moving. I mean, on the one hand, I, I, I feel as if we as a society need to change some things about how we deal with end of life and in terms of people having access to what the kinds of things you're offering. And then at the same time, the idea that uh, people willingly and out of their hearts uh, support you in this mission also seems quite beautiful. 
um, because there's a recognition in that that we're kind of all in this together, that we're all right. going to be that person. And um, the fact that people are recognizing that and, and supporting others to have the kind of end-of-life experience that is beautiful uh, just moves me. It is powerful. And the, to realize the extent of people's desire to pay it forward never ceases to amaze me. You know, we, we get donations in the mail every day, and, and some days I'll open the mail and there is a check from someone whose mother was here 10 years ago mm-hmm. in the apartments, you know, in the very first couple of months we were open, whatever that might be, five years ago. What, that we've had families that have had multiple loved ones that have spent time with us, and they never forget. And that's one of the real gifts of this kind of care. And for me, what's always been the biggest gift of hospice nursing, those who provide love and care in such a vulnerable, intimate time of a family story, you become a part of that story, and they mm-hmm. never forget you. Yes. I, I know, I, you know, I started hospice nursing in northern Indiana in 1994, 95, and there are still families there that I know still talk about me, not, not because I'm that fabulous, but because I was a part of their story. And I was the one that was with their mama when their mama took her last breath. And, and we walked that journey together, so I became a part of that story. That is such a tremendous honor and privilege. It is so inspiring to be taken in and loved like that for no mm-hmm. other reason than that you're willing to be present and you're willing to be a part of that pain. All of us that work here at Clearhouse, that is what is the basis of the inspiration for us to be here. You know, everybody has to earn a living, but we're not here for the paycheck alone. We are here because of the great gifts that we are given every day by being able to be a part of the story of so many families. And that was kind of the next place I wanted to uh, explore with you. Um, you know, I was just at this conference. There were 500 people there, all of whom worked with illness, death, loss, grief. And um, I, I felt as if there were 500 people who had a story of why that work came into their life. And it was usually a very personal story. And I can imagine your story being, um, uh, you know, really about knowing all those people in in your work previously, but I wonder what drew you to that work in the first place? Um, You know, I think I knew from the time I was 10 or 11 years old that I wanted to be a nurse. I, I just, that's been a part of my DNA ever since I can remember. Um, my mom's a nurse. I have a couple of aunts that are nurses. I think at last count we had nine nurses in my immediate family right now. Um, so that that's always been a part of of my family story. Um, the kind of nurse I wanted to be happened um, kind of coincidentally. I, I had a couple of different job offers when I first got out of school and one was on a surgical floor and one was on an oncology unit. And I chose the oncology unit and 
found that I was always gravitating towards the folks that weren't getting better. You know, we had, we gave chemo on that unit. We had a bone marrow transplant unit that I worked in and we had primary nursing. So you got to, you would choose people that you would be in relationships with during their entire hospital stay. And I would always seem to gravitate towards the ones that, that were not getting better and weren't responding to treatment um, and were, were in end of life stages. And I just, developed an affinity for that. It was my comfort zone. You know, a lot of healthcare providers don't like being in end-of-life situations. They're not comfortable dealing with death and dying. And unfortunately, in a lot of hospitals, the patients that are in those rooms dying are avoided. You know, staff doesn't go in there as often. They, yes. they try not to spend much time in those rooms. And um, I was the opposite of that. Those those were the places I wanted to be, and I developed a real comfort level with it. And it and it takes at it. It takes people who are willing to sit and be present in in pain, in grief, um, and and just be willing to be a part of that. I I have never thought that the words that I say are more important than the willingness to be present at the bedside. Well, and it I would... feeds me. It, it fed me from the very beginning. There was, you know, I, there's that old quote, you might help me with it, that, um, you know, you, when your greatest passion meets the world's greatest need, do you, do you know that quote I'm I know the to? quote, and I'm, not, and I'm not remembering the exact... Exact words. I, I, I but, can't remember yeah. the exact words either, but I always feel that way. I feel like I'm one of those people that was lucky enough that my greatest passion coincided with this great need and we fit together. And not everybody finds that. So I'm grateful. I'm really, really grateful that that worked for me in my life. And I have to say, you're probably uh, somewhat unusual in, you know, uh, many, many people I know in, in, roughly were in the same field in this field, um, had some loss of their own, you know, personal loss, that then kind of led them to the work. But for you, you were led to the work, and then it, and then it changed you as you went along, it sounds like, um, that that passion came to you just from out of your own being. I think so. I mean, I, I had, I lost family members um, in my teen years, and, and, experienced loss. I mean, I've, I've been through the grief and loss of, of a divorce and I have had these experiences, but I do think that it was, it was a lot of it was the work itself that, that really drew me. And, and I just want to echo what you're saying about how unusual that is in the medical profession. Um, certainly more likely in my experience on oncology units or in places where there's uh, you know, people sort of um, can't do that work without uh, allowing the experience of loss, you know, because it happens. <laughs> but um, to be especially drawn to people who are um, not being helped, as you put it, who, who are at the end of their lives, I think that's a little bit unusual. So I'm, I'm thinking that's part of the, um, the heart of Claire House. Uh, that that kind of passion for um, being with people at that moment. 
It is, but I feel that I have so many kindred spirits out there, right, mm-hmm. right here in our own home, with our supporters, our board members, our volunteers, people that that love this place as much as I do. But also, even beyond that, in the few other homes like us that are across this country, um, those folks. They're just, they're like me. They, they feel like I do about it and it's, they take it into their heart and soul just as much as I do and, and there are many, many of those people and, and homes with the heart of Claire House, um, that are, that have found the love and the passion I, for this work. I, I want to pick that up after our break because I do want to, um, kind of talk about, uh, your broader vision, which I know you have and how you, how you, go about supporting that beyond, you know, Claire House in particular. So, guess again, I want to encourage you to be in touch with me. I really, really love to hear from you out there. Let's have a conversation and find out more about Kelly Scott and Claire House at www.clairehouse.org or on the Claire House Facebook page. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kelly, Kelly Scott, who founded Claire House, a social model hospice in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I, and I wanted to start this segment, Kelly, really talking about your vision, because I know you consult for other people uh, trying to um, bring this kind of service into their own communities. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that aspect of your work and and uh, what you find, you know, going to other places and trying to. Are there differences? Is it just the same in in other locations? Uh, what have you learned from that work? When we started Claire House, we had a vision, and we look to find a model to base that on. And we made site visits to hospice houses 
um, in a couple of different places in the country. But what we were finding was the existing model was a medical model, and it was a an inpatient or a residential facility that was owned and operated by a Medicare-certified hospice program or a health system, and it really served a majority of inpatient kinds of needs. They don't meet the um, caregiver crisis need that Clearhouse was designed for. And so, you know, people may say when they listen to this, they may think, oh, but there's a hospice home in my city. There's hospice homes everywhere. And there are a lot of Medicare hospice houses across the country. But that medical model is very different than what we have learned to call the social model. When we started this, we thought we were making it up as we went along because we couldn't find anything, anyone else that was doing what we wanted to do. And we thought we were making it up. The really, really wonderful thing that we've learned over the last several years is that independently in other cities across this nation, other communities came up with the same idea. They had Mm -hmm. the same solution to the same problem, which is a wonderfully affirming thing to figure out is that wow, independently, all these people came up with the same solution, and it's working in different communities. So slowly, over the last 10 years, we have built a network of people that that are running homes like this as we discover each other. And every month, we seem to discover someone else that is just finding out about us that has either been doing it or wants to do it in their own community. So we have formed this network, the Social Hospice Network. It's very informal. Um, It's for support, sharing, mentoring, consulting. We all offer this to each other at no charge. We, you know, we help each other. We offer site visits. We share forms and documents and policies. We tell our history. We tell our stories. We affirm each other and inspire each other. And we do that because we believe that there ought to be a Claire House in every community or a Maliki House in every community or a Sarah House or our Community House of Hope. Whatever the local community has come up with, we believe that, you know, everybody ought to have a home like this and have access to it. Those other homes you mentioned, um, is there is there any link to them on your website if people are in other areas? Um, yes. If you if you go to the Clearhouse website at www.clearhouse.org, there is a tab on the um, homepage that says education. And if you click on the education tab, it will give you options to look at um, a a page for the social model hospices, and there are um, links. I believe there are under the resource tab. There are links to those other t- homes that we know about that are a part of the network. Because you know, I, I've been, I've had a few guests with whom I've talked about the impact on end of life that that us baby boomers are going to have. I'm in that, <laughs> I'm in that group during the silver tsunami. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because. Um, we're, we have less resource for our, the end of our lives than our parents had, at least I do and many other people, uh, less savings and all that. There are more of us. And I think we're a little unusual in, in um, you know, being uh, sort of open to communal ideas, wanting to go together. I guess I'd say. And I, I have to think that's going to have an impact and maybe is, is already a little bit. Um, well, it's, it's going to have a tremendous impact. Our healthcare system is completely unprepared for the amount of informal caregiving that's going to be required as all the baby boomers enter the Medicare system. 
it's going to be overwhelming. It's it is, and and you know, being an optimist, I always think that those moments where a system gets outstripped ultimately sometimes leads to, uh, you know, as it did for you, seeing something missing and creating it. Uh, <laughs> you know, right. that it's painful to see what's missing, but um, I'm very heartened by what you've created and the fact that those kinds of options are being created um, at least in a few places already. And, you know, you are an optimist and that's great to hear. I, I am one of those people that look at something and think, let's fix this, we'll figure it out. What we heard over and over and what I know that, that some of my colleagues in this work hear also is, well, that can be done. You can't do that. It won't work. Mm -hmm. And when you come up with a solution that's outside of the box, you have to be really, really committed and have pretty thick skin (laughs) about moving forward. Because, you know, within the traditional healthcare system, I wouldn't say it's a real creative outside the box kind of system. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Something like this, you have to, you know, it really requires a level of commitment and and belief in the possibility of what can be done and what a community can do for itself if people work together. Absolutely. I mean, another good example is, is this uh, organization that my wife helped found, Women's Cancer Resource Center out here. Boy, it was just a little postage stamp storefront for a long, long time. Now it's, they're looking to buy a building. You know, there's also the sense of um, having to be willing to commit for a long term. Right. To, well, to, and, and the other thing is with startup, with I think with probably any nonprofit or service kind of organization, is you just have to get started. You just have to start somewhere. And I tell people that all the time. Don't come here and look at this big, beautiful house and think, this is what I want in my community. Think about a bedroom that you can care for someone that's dying and give them that time and attention that they need. That's where it starts. It starts with that one person. And, you know, we rented that one apartment and started taking care of three people at a time. And over the next four years, we added, we got a second apartment and then a third and then a fourth. We lived in those little apartments for six years and we took care of over a thousand people in those four apartments. And it was not handicap accessible and it was awkward and it, we couldn't get people on stretchers into the bedrooms because the hallways weren't wide enough to turn the stretcher. So we had to literally pick them up and carry them from the hallway stretcher to the bed. We made it work. It was home for us. It was sacred space because of all the life that was lived out in those spaces. You start wherever you are. That's, that's I, I, I think it it's so, it's, it, it's so vital what you're saying that um, it doesn't have to be everything to be something. Right, You know, if people are, are very called by something, maybe there's a little thing they can do about it. Uh, right. Not that those things were little by any means, but maybe it's just, um, you know, volunteering, for instance. There's a volunteer program at that center that people go in and, and help people who are are struggling with cancer just for a couple of hours a week. You know, that's that's a small thing that makes a huge difference. 
And I think that's what you're talking about. Don't stop just because it can't be everything. Or don't never start because it can't be everything all at once. Mm-hmm. You know, you take that first step and you make a difference. And that inspires you to keep going and, and take the next step and take the next step. If if people out there are are kind of drawn uh, in in a compelling way to doing some of this work, what it, obviously you think love is at the center of it. I I would have to go along with you there. But are there other things that are just vital to be thinking about if you're starting to think about offering services like this? Uh, where do people begin in terms of sorting out what's most important? Um, I think you have to build, you, you have to have a strong leader. You have to have someone that carries the vision and has a strong passion for that and also has some expertise in the kind of care that needs to be provided. That leader has to build a, a team, a group of people that are going to work together and form, go through all of what has to happen. You know, it's it can be complicated. You've got to get your 501c3 status from the IRS and form the corporate structure and write bylaws and create a board of directors and develop a strategy and a plan for fundraising and, and people with operational expertise that can look at the care side of it and understand how to set up the care. The beautiful thing is that this has been done over a dozen times now in different states, by different organizations, we've pretty much all followed the same roadmap, whether we did it spontaneously or we were mentored by one of the existing houses, and that help is there. So one of the first things to do is to build a relationship with somebody else that's already doing it. Make a site visit. Start getting, start picking their brains and figuring out what needs to happen. Um, but the desire within the community has to be there first. You know, I couldn't just pick a city on a map and say, I'm going to go there and help this community start a social model hospice. It, it has to be organic. It has to come from the community saying, we have this need and we're going to fix it. We've got a solution and we're going to make it work. Mm-hmm. I, can't go, I can't go instill that somewhere. It needs to come from the community. And I imagine there's also an ep- economic layer to that in two ways. Uh, for instance, where I live quite expensive to live here people are <laughs> pedaling hard <laughs> to to make it and the and the um the land is very expensive so it would be a lot more expensive i'm imagining to uh create what you something close to what you have here mm-hmm. um so i'm guessing that's but of course i guess there might be more access to to finances if uh if there was enough desire uh, but still, that is that is potentially a complication, yeah? Yeah, and that's one of the strategic areas that has to be evaluated and addressed. You know, some of the homes that are open now were gifted the home that they live in. It was something that was donated to them once the need was put out there in the community. Somebody said, hey, I got a house I'll give you, and, and that's how they got started. Um, you know, we rented our home, we rented those apartments until we felt like we were strong enough as an organization with a strong service record and reputation and a good good fundraising relationships with um, donors within our community that we felt like we were strong enough to 
initiate and succeed with a capital campaign. And and we did. I mean, we raised the money to buy this house or to, uh, to build this house, and we paid cash for it as we went along. So we have no mortgage. We have no debt. As part of that process, we raised the money for, to support our operations for three years so that we weren't trying to go back to those same people and asking for operating gifts after we'd already asked for a big capital gift. Mm-hmm. And we created an endowment for building maintenance and, and operations. So we are stable financially. We have done that work, but we we put in the time. We built our history. We built our relationships. We made sure that, you know, we had the reputation that, that people understood what we did and respected us. I, I don't think we could have gone out and done a capital campaign before we were ever providing a service. I know. I mean, we did yes, because for sure. nobody, nobody got it. They didn't understand what we were doing. And nobody's going to give us a million dollars, two million dollars, when they didn't even understand what we were doing. That's a good place to start. Stop for the day, Kelly. I just thank you so much for being being here. You inspired me and made me think this is really a possible thing. I I thank you very much for being with me. And uh, out there, go to cl- www.clarehouse.org or to the Facebook page to find out more. Next week, I'll be talking with Suzanne West. Suzanne is the author of Soul Care for Caregivers, How to Help Yourself While Helping Others. The book shares the lessons Suzanne learned through, throughout many, many years of caregiving herself and as a professional teaching caregivers how to support themselves. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.